So this morning we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're getting to another, um, another big chunk. Last week we wrapped up chapter 11, which, no, chapter 10, which was Jesus sending out the 12. Jesus names the 12, kind of tells them places they're to go, places they're not to go, things to take with them, the demeanor they are to go out with. We talked about how, what kind of hurdles and struggles they might encounter. And then last week, Jesus ended with a real big bomb, the, you know, you kind of have to do this or you're not worthy of me side of things. So that was kind of that big hurrah, hurrah speech. Jesus sends them out. And so this week, we're going to pick up with what happened immediately after that. And it's kind of a longer passage this week. It's really three passages, it should be. But I think it tells a nice cohesive story, so I'm going to plop them all together, and we'll go through each kind of chunk by itself. So I will start with the first chunk here, starting right at the beginning of Matthew 11. When Jesus finished teaching his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the things Jesus was doing, he sent word to his disciples to Jesus, asking, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Jesus responded, Go, report to John what you hear and see. Those who were blind are able to see. Those who were crippled are walking. People with skin diseases are cleansed. Those who were deaf now hear. Those who were dead are raised up. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. Happy are those who don't stumble and fall because of me. This is a passage that we don't often turn to, right? Like, I, you know, when we got to this passage, I read it, I'm like, yeah, I haven't really thought about this passage a lot before. This is big. John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin is doubting, is having questions, is asking, so are you the Messiah or did I get it wrong? Now, we don't know why John is questioning at this point. He is in prison, so does that play into it? Is it, you know, if my cousin was the Messiah, would, would I really be in prison? So maybe there's that part of it. It could be Jesus wasn't fire and brimstone enough for John. John was very, you know, beat the pulpit, yell, go out, offend. That's what John did. Jesus is a lot softer than that. So is Jesus not what John expected? It doesn't tell us. We can only speculate what it is. But for whatever reason, John is questioning. John is asking, did, did I not baptize the Messiah? Did, did I baptize the wrong person? So how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, oh, yeah, there's John. Okay, yeah, nice picture of John there. Jesus responds, by going back to scripture. He responds by saying, hey, look at what's happening around you. Look at all the things that are being done. Cripples are walking. People with skin diseases are being healed. The dead are rising. And I love the way Jesus sums this up at the bottom. This really, the end of verse five here could really be a summary of the entire gospel. The poor have had good news proclaimed to them. That's what Jesus is going to tell John. Hey, everything you've seen here, take this, go tell John this. This will encourage him. 
I don't know if I can understate or overstate how big of a deal this is. Jesus and John, they're kind of inseparable in terms of prophecy. You very rarely have one talked about without the other. It's, we'll talk about a passage in a little bit that's, you know, John comes to prepare the way for Jesus. They're, they're linked together, both in prophecy and family. They're first cousins. They're family. John was arguably, has known Jesus longer than anyone else who's around him during his ministry. It's John. And this person is doubting. This person has questions. So Jesus sends John's disciples away. What does he do? What, what does he respond? You know, this is his time to be like, oh, John, oh, cuz, what have you done? Why are you doubting? That's not what he does. Let's see how he responds. When John's disciples had gone, Jesus spoke to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed blowing in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in refined clothes. Look, those who wear refined clothes are in the royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, the, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He is the one of whom it is written, Look, I am sending my messenger before you, who will proclaim your way before you. I assure you that no one who has ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is violently attacked as violent people seize it. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let the person who has ears hear. So there's a lot going on here. So let's kind of break it down a little bit. Jesus starts off with a series of questions up here. The first one is the reed. Did you go to see a Oops, scrolled too far. Did you go to see a weed blown in the wind? What is this? There's some debate among scholars, but most scholars agree that this is a reference to Herod, the, the current Herod, Herod Antipas, who, because his royal symbol was the reed, it, this is coins that were minted by him, his, he used the reed to represent him. So I'm going to pass around a, this is a replica of this coin, this is not a real coin, I, I didn't steal a coin, it's, it's a replica I bought of the coins that would have been in Jerusalem at Jesus' time. And you can see it has a reed on it. So the idea is, did you go out to find Rome? Did you go out to find the authority of Rome? Well, no, no. And the next, it's, did you go out to find someone in you know, fancy clothes? Did you go out to see you know, this dashing fellow out there with this fancy top hat and such? Well, no, if you wanted to find a fine fellow like this, you would go to the palace. You would go to the chief priest, the elders, in their ornate robes. So Jesus is highlighting, you didn't go out to find Rome. You didn't, <laughs> are you done already? <laughs> well done. Good work. That was, that was crazy fast. Excellent. I love it. Okay. So you didn't go out 
to find Rome. You didn't go out to find the authority of Rome. No. You didn't go out searching for the authorities in the temple. No. Because, honestly, both of those were the two main groups oppressing the people at the time. What did they go out to find? They went out to find a prophet. Not only that, but the greatest prophet. And here is where Jesus quotes the passage from Malachi, Malachi 3. And I love this quote here, the, you know, look, I'm sending my messenger before you, who will prepare a way for you. Because normally when we think of this, it is John quoting it to talk about Jesus. Here, Jesus is using this same passage to talk about it. No, this is prophesying John as well. This is used as proof to know John is the one in this passage. I just love how this passage is used both ways to talk about, refer to each other. I just think that it's such a fascinating use that Jesus is using a passage not to highlight, hey, this is me it's talking about. He's using it to highlight, no, that, it's talking about my cousin. John is the one that starts this passage. And I just absolutely love that. It comes down to this idea, I assure you that no one who has ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. The person who has just come doubting, Jesus is saying, no, they are the greatest of the prophets. We're going to jump down a little bit because this is kind of a mini excursus here about what's going on historically, about the violence and such. Some really good things we could talk about there. I could really do a whole sermon on that, but that doesn't fit in with our theme here. But that's what Jesus is talking about, is kind of the violence going on kind of around the time, starting with kind of the massacre of innocents, with Jesus' birth, and just escalating through Jesus' death. What I want to get to is down here at the bottom. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. Highlighting this idea that John is really the last prophet. The last prophet that will prophesy about Jesus is John. Now, do you notice anything peculiar about prophets and law? Call it out. Do you see anything funny, weird about them? Why are they capitalized? Yes, why are they capitalized? Well, they're capitalized because they are official parts of what became known as the Hebrew Bible. So, those of you, I guess it's two summers ago at this point, we did a couple-week study, kind of an intro to the Old Testament, and we talked about how our, our Christian Old Testaments are, is nothing but the Hebrew Bible, just in a different order. The books are in a different order. Our Christian canons put things roughly in a thematic order, whereas the Hebrew Bible puts things roughly in a chronologic order. In the Hebrew Bible, it's broken down into three sections. First one, the Torah, which is the law, first five books. The second one is the prophets, the Nevi'im. So when Jesus is talking about the prophets and the law, he's talking about what are the books, most of the books of our Old Testament. Jesus is talking about scripture. So all of the scripture of the prophets, all of the law prophesied to this point, the point when John came to proclaim, he's just talking about himself, to proclaim Jesus. Now, Jesus, end, Jesus ends with an interesting one here. If you are willing to accept it, he, being John, is Elijah. What, what is Jesus talking about here? Elijah holds this almost mythic standing, especially in the first century. 
Does anyone know, I guess I'm kind of giving it away here, does anyone know the unique thing about Elijah? Something that is pretty characteristic, yeah? Yep, yeah. Yeah, Elijah is one of two people in the Old Testament who doesn't actually die, is just taken by God. Does anyone know the other one? His dad. Anyone? Anyone? She said Methuselah. It's Methuselah's dad. Enoch. Yep. Enoch's the other person that just, was just taken in lieu of dying. So because of this, there's all this kind of hype thought around Elijah. Like, is, when Elijah comes, it's going to be this great event. It's going to be the herald of massive change. And so Jesus is saying, oh, no, John is that herald. John is Elijah. No, not in a like actual reincarnation type way, but in a that Elijah coming to usher a great change, usher this great historic monumental moment. It's it's now. John is that symbolic Elijah. That moment of historic change, it's happening right now. If you would just be willing to accept it, it's going on right in front of you. So what? is Jesus' reaction to his cousin, arguably his first disciple, having doubts. It's to praise him. It's to say he is the best of the best. Elijah, not Elijah, John was with Jesus really before his ministry started, and as we'll read in a few chapters, is really the first person to die for Jesus' ministry. And he's questioning. He has questions. And Jesus welcomes them, supports, sends answers back to him. So what does this say for us today? I think it's okay for us to have questions. It's okay for us to not understand something. I know a lot of us grew up, if you've grown up in the churches, there's a good chance we, ha- we were at a location or a church that was just like, no, 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 don't, don't ask questions. I know a thing I got told a lot growing up when I had a question about a passage was, is that necessary for salvation? Well, well, well no, then don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is welcoming these questions. I think we sometimes worry that we're like, oh, if I... If I don't understand something, if I question, I'm going to get smited. That's not what we see in this passage. That's, <laughs> that's not what we see Jesus doing here. Because Jesus doesn't want us to just accept things blindly. To just wholesale accept what my mom, your dad, grandpa, grandma, aunt, uncle, pastor just told you. Because in all honesty, then that isn't your faith. That's the faith of your mom, your dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, your pastor, that you're just parroting. It becomes yours when you dig into it, when you investigate it, when you question it, when you get answers for yourself. You believe because you've wrestled and explored. This is probably about almost a month ago at this point, but there, for probably about a week on TikTok, there was a very highly trending video 
about, about this guy, and he was just railing against deconstructionism, saying that this is Satan's great plan to get us to turn away from Jesus. Now, for those of you who don't, haven't heard this term before, deconstructionism is the idea of kind of deconstructing your faith, breaking it down into its like base parts and really wrestling with them, really trying to understand every core element of it. And this is something that almost anyone who has gone to Bible school or seminary or anything has these crises from time to time, because as you will learn, you'll be like, oh, wait, that's, that's not the flannel graph story Bible I grew up with. What, what is going on here? Until so you break it apart, you analyze it, you learn, you grow from it. And for me, and for most people that I know, you come out of this stronger. You come out of it understanding more. So I, the idea that this idea of deconstructionism is Satan's great plan seems kind of backwards, because the whole idea of it is, let's dig into the Bible, let's dig into this, let's analyze it. So it if Satan's plan is to have us dig more into the Bible, that, that's a real bad plan. You, that, you messed up on that one. So this idea of digging into the Bible is such a great thing. Oop, oh, I scrolled too far there. As we see in this passage, Jesus comforts, supports the question. The, I don't understand. Tell me. Help me. Because this is what healthy doubts look like. And in this next passage, this is why I kind of clumped these three together, we're going to get the opposite of that, of what just unhealthy doubts look like. So I'm going to jump down, continuing on here, starting in verse 16. To what will I compare this generation? This is still Jesus talking. It is like a child sitting in the marketplace calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you, and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song for you and you didn't mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he's a demon. Yet, a human one came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved to be the right by her works. So this is highlighting what unhealthy questioning is like. He's highlighting here, especially with this, these analogies that it doesn't matter what we do, you're not going to like it. We come in, you know, both extremes, a happy, fun dance and a sad funeral dirge. Everything between, you're, you're not liking. You're rejecting. He continues this analogy here with himself and John. So John, look at that guy. John is what we call a Nazarene, which is different, or he's a Nazarite, which is different than a Nazarene. Jesus is called Jesus the Nazarene because he was from a specific geographic area. Nazarite is, for lack of a better word, a religious sect. It's a small group that took some vows. Um, Samson, in the Old Testament, was part of this group. So John is part of this group. You can see kind of the wild hair, the clothes he wore, and the food he ate. Didn't eat a lot. Very, very strict. And people look at that and they're like, nah, that's, that's too weird. That's, that's too holy. You have to be a demon. Something's wrong there. And then Jesus comes in. Oh, nope, not that. Jesus comes in here being kind of normal, you know, doing everything that you're supposed to do that they're saying John didn't do. And they point out like, well, look at that glutton. He's out hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. 
So John was too holy, and Jesus wasn't holy enough. He's highlighting this. It, it doesn't matter what is presented for you. You are determined to not accept the Messiah. So this was really highlighting the difference between earnest questioning and being predetermined to hate something. So I was trying to think of an example of something where I've been predetermined to dislike something, and the best one I found was thought of was this movie right here. So this is Solo. It is a Star Wars movie. It was a prequel to the Ridge Tridge, you know, episodes four, five, and six, centering on the character of Han Solo right there. Now, in episode four, we are introduced to the character of Han Solo. His whole arc is he starts off as kind of a bad guy. He's not really a good person. And then by the end, he goes on this journey, and he becomes the hero. He's the one that comes in at the last second, saves everyone, you know, saves Luke, you know, flies in, shoots Darth Vader, saves everything. But the first time we're introduced to Han Solo in this first movie, he murders a guy. Because Han always shoots first. That is what, the first time we're introduced to him, he kills someone. And then goes on this arc of redemption. So if you're going to do a prequel to that, you kind of have two options. Either he has to be the bad guy throughout of it, and that's probably not a great way to go, or he has to have the same arc of starting as a bad guy and then kind of becoming a good guy. And if that happens, then why is he a bad guy at the end? You know, it, it doesn't make sense. So I wasn't happy that this movie was happening to start with. And then they fired the two directors that I liked. Lord and Miller are like two of the funniest directors out there. Like, I'm like, oh, you're like, all right, if anyone can make it work, like, I think they could. No, no, they fired them and hired maybe the most boring director of all time, but like a good director, Ron Howard but a boring director. You're, Ron Howard's not gonna push the envelope in any direction. So when this movie comes out, I was gonna hate it before I saw it. And I did. I do not like this movie at all. Now, I don't know if I could ever objectively watch it. It could be a really good movie. But I went into it being like, I'm gonna hate this, 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 and this. And I saw that I hated this, 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 and this. But I never gave this movie a chance. It could be amazing, but I went into it knowing I was going to hate it. This is just a dumb, fun example. But have you ever gone into a meeting with someone, had a conversation about a topic or whatever it is, and you kind of knew that no matter what you said or did, it wasn't going to change their mind? You could do nothing to budge or move them. That's what Jesus is talking about here with the crowd. This kind of questioning isn't really questioning or doubting. Honestly, it's kind of lying to yourself and lying to God. Because it's not letting God work in your life. It's being determined to push Jesus out before Jesus even had a chance to work in your heart. So if we are open to having genuine concerns, we have actual questions. We read something and we're like, I, I don't understand this. That, that changes how I understand something. How, how can I learn? How can I use this as an opportunity to grow and learn and dig deeper? He just welcomes that. There you go. I think because Jesus knows that the gospel is such good news that it will come out in the end. Your questions, your concerns, your ramblings, you know, when you have questions, when you are like, wait, 
I don't understand. What is this? Jesus wants you to dig in. Because Jesus knows the answer. And the answer is Jesus. And Jesus knows you'll get there. You won't go down this rabbit hole and come out of, well, I, I guess I just disproved the Bible. Jesus knows that's not going to be the case. He invites those questions. Because it'll only grow your faith. It'll only enhance your relationship with Jesus. Digging in. Breaking things apart. Having them knit back stronger. So, ask those questions. There is no shame, no fear in questioning. Jesus' own cousin, the one who baptized Jesus and saw the dove come down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, doubted, had questions. And Jesus didn't, you know, smite him, didn't, as soon as his people left, bad-talked him. Jesus said, yes, here's the answer. Here's what you're looking for. So bring these questions. Bring everything to the table of God. Because the table of God is open. The table of God is a place of love. We are forgiven. We are saved. 